Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and today we are bringing you a bonus episode. On the show with us today is Courtney Chow, a vice president at Battery Ventures, who is focused on early and growth stage consumer internet, software, and fintech investments. Courtney, hey, first of all, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here and talk about all things Gen Z. <laughs> I know, a generation that neither one of us are part of, but an important generation to understand. And I want to start there because it's rare that when I read a report from a venture capital firm, it is not focused on venture flows, valuations, and so forth. In this case, you guys actually sat down and produced a, a relatively lengthy report on a particular generation. So just to set the groundwork here a little bit, why this report and why this report right now? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I'm happy to expand on that. So I guess maybe just for context, you know, obviously I'm a battery, 40-year-old firm, stage agnostic, venture capital, private equity firm. We do everything from seed to buyout. I sit on the consumer side of things where we view really the consumer as our North Star. We care a lot about how consumers want to live, work, play in the world. And as their preferences and behaviors change, we think a lot about the emerging technologies needed to bridge these gaps and enable these shifts. And one big underlying change or shift that we're really fascinated by and monitoring closely is the growing influence of Gen Z on culture and society, right? And so much to my millennial surprise, they represent much more than TikTok dances. The oldest Gen Z is 26 now. Many of them are graduating college. They're entering the workforce. They're coming into significant earning potential. And I think what's really interesting is how profound and swift their impact is already on industries, just given how hyper-connected, how highly opinionated this generation is. And so I think it's really exciting to me that you know Gen Z's impact on business, culture, and society is that much more magnified and dramatic compared to other generations. And so for us, being a super research-driven, data-driven, customer-obsessed firm, we really wanted to impact and explore and analyze these distinct Gen Z characteristics and yeah. how these distinct characteristics would not only impact existing products and categories, but really create net new products, business models, markets, and then ultimately opportunities to invest behind. And that's what I want to get into, which is how does this all kind of fit into the startup world? But sticking to just Gen Z from the, the high-level perspective, you guys say it's now around 25% or a quarter of the global population, which is one in four people. If you want to put that into more human terms, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of purchasing power. They are the most racially diverse population, at least here in the United States, most likely to identify as part of the LGBTQ community. And it's just a very interesting group of people. The thing that drives me bonkers is I feel like all we did was mock millennials for like 500 years. And then we didn't stop that until Gen Z had already come into their economic clout. And now they're getting props for it. And I feel vaguely cheated. When, when, when was our time in the sun? No, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think that, you know, for us, we're, we're really fascinated by the fact that Gen Z's see and interact the world differently, right? They've never known a world without a search engine, a cell phone, social media. They grew up amidst constant economic, social, political changes, um, you know, also a global pandemic that's really shaped their views and values. And I think the convergence of the two technology and values have really created a new set of norms and behaviors that make Gen Z unique and yes. unlike any other generation before them, right? And I think for us as investors, that generally creates new opportunities to invest behind. We saw this 10, 15 years ago with millennials driving huge transformation across e-com, entertainment, and social. I think iconic companies like Airbnb, Spotify, Uber, Instagram uh, really emerged from their unique 
preferences and behaviors. And I think we'll see that again with Gen Z. And in my opinion, probably a lot more magnified and profound, just given, again, how hyper-connected they are. Yeah. And that brings me to the first thing that I really wanted to get into, which was my impression after reading through the report, and I'll throw a link to it in the show notes of this. So if you're listening and want to take a look at it, it's there, was that 91% of 18 to 25-year-olds say there's no such thing as mainstream pop culture. And this actually makes perfect sense to me because one set of headlines that I enjoy every year is the Grammys happen or some other major award show. And then the headlines are like Grammys that, you know, viewership plummets by 80% from last year or whatever. And it somehow happens every year. But to me, we used to have a, a culture that was much more, I don't know, monolithic. And then as mm-hmm. time has gone on, the introduction of you know YouTube and places where individuals could make their own content and share with a large audience, we've ended up with a culture being instead of one large continent, a, a, a series of interconnected islands to a degree. And Gen Z seems to really encompass that. Does this ever kind of reverse or do we do we keep kind of like fracturing further until culture is just the things that I like versus something that I'm kind of partaking in in a larger group? Oh, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think one of the main differences between millennials and Gen Z, I think millennials had a culture of, of fitting in. You know, Gen Z's grew up in a world of social media, celebrity culture, to your point, and almost have come to resent and reject their predecessor of the millennial tendencies for this kind of perfectly curated, filtered online identity. And so there is a real kind of bias and gravitation towards authenticity, towards the truth, towards individuality. You know, at the same time, this is the most diverse generation in terms of race, gender, and sexual orientation, right? And so diversity and inclusion are no longer kind of nice-to-haves, but they're, they're must-haves, and I think it's really embraced And the last thing I'll say is, I think it's also a generation where they don't want to just simply be a consumer of culture. They want to be this co-creator. They want to be this producer user. TikTok is a perfect example of this. And so I think being a part of the creation of culture perhaps emphasizes this fragmentation. That fragmentation is, that siloed nature is that much more kind of powerful in in, in the niche. So I was thinking a lot about the impact of a more fragmented culture on digital products. And uh, this kind of hit me in two ways, because on one hand, we talk a lot about the rise of vertical or more specialized social networks. People like to put Strava Mm -hmm. up as an example. I'm I'm a Strava user. It's great, but also it's pretty niche versus say, you know, the Facebook blue app, right? On the other hand, though, TikTok has shown that from a single digital nexus, you can, through intelligent algorithms, still serve up highly targeted content to consumers, even in the Gen Z demographic, and make them feel like they're participating in their part of culture, if you will. And so I'm kind of curious, does does the fragmentation of culture lead to smaller, more niche consumer applications or simply larger platforms that are better at only showing off a, a segment of their content to people that might be interested in it? To your point, I think the rapid and dramatic rise of TikTok really showed how niche communities are rewriting mainstream culture. It's one of the first kind of social platforms that are not really based on existing social graphs, which Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat all did. Mm. The growth is really facilitated by niche online communities through its hyper-personalized for you algorithm. And I think another difference here, an important distinction, is that the gatekeepers are no longer kind of elite folks at the top, but rather community members, right? Each person's voice is valuable as the next in helping to shape and evolve subculture. And so I do think that there's a real opportunity for the verticalization of creative, personal, professional networks. There's five, six billion smartphones worldwide. And so a social network or a platform that might seem niche can now attract hundreds of millions of users. Now, I think it's important to understand how that network is constructed. Yes. But I do think that 
there is kind of an opportunity for verticalization for people to foster more meaningful connections based upon shared interest. So the reason why I think I'm a little bit more bullish about more niche communities targeting smaller bits of culture versus the mega platforms being able to tune like TikTok has is that I slightly disagree with your point about culture on TikTok being driven by creators per se. I think that they're very adept at working inside of TikTok's system, but I I still think that the platform itself retains, and this is just my view, the lion's share of control. And so I think individual creators fit into this, but they're not they're not the sole driver of what's happening and what's being shown and what becomes popular because there's a lot of levers behind the curtain, if that makes sense. And so to me, smaller, more vertical, more targeted social networks or whatever they're, whatever this, these products are that we're talking about could have more authenticity by definition because they're less algorithmically predicated, if that makes sense. That's a fair statement. I mean, TikTok by nature is a horizontal platform, right? And they c- control distribution. I think from a kind of business perspective, the niche kind of vertical platforms that we'd be excited by, it would have to also have the ability to monetize in a meaningful way, right? Not all categories can monetize in a meaningful way. And so I think there is that kind of component to it. But I do agree that I think there that the natural kind of trend that we're seeing is users going away from the main feeds of these horizontal platforms. Uh, now, is that a business fully, TBD? Right. But I agree with your point there. So this is kind of the thing that I was trying to figure out after reading the report, thinking about startups, because I I love consumer startups. I cover a lot of B2B SaaS, but what gets me excited really is like cool new stuff that I can use personally in my life. Like, you know, I'm a human first and I guess a reporter second, for lack of a better phrase. But how can startups build big when it seems consumer culture is getting increasingly small and and rarefied from other bits of culture? Because it seems like almost harder to reach like a mass scale of users for a consumer product for Gen Z, just given that they have more individual, more particular, and more niche interests? So your question is, how can you still attack a TAM that is big enough, just given how increasingly fragmented niche interests are? Exactly. This is the tension that I think startup founders are going to have to deal with, because if people expect things to be well-targeted to them, it's just harder to build a horizontal platform, I think. And therefore, it's going to be harder to capture TAM to the same degree that prior breakout consumer successes have. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the reason why I'm having maybe a troubled time uh, perhaps responding to that is because I, I don't really think about the TAM decreasing. I actually think that there's new TAM that's being created, right? Based on the behaviors that they're driving. And so my mind doesn't actually go to TAM decreasing. It actually goes to market creation. Mm, interesting. TAM that does not exist before. We actually thought a lot about the future of work. I used to work at LinkedIn as well, right? LinkedIn is a huge horizontal platform that addresses kind of a big part of of the market, but not all of it, right? And actually does not address a big part of the market that Gen Zs want to enter, which is very entrepreneurial, which is kind of powering the side hustle economy. And so whether we want to talk about future of work and the rise of this kind of side hustle economy, whether we want to talk about commerce, where now there's convergence of social commerce, whether we want to talk about, you know, we talked about just communities and entertainment, new kind of networks forming around certain interests. My mind actually doesn't go to TAM decreasing. It, it goes to category formation. So if we're talking about category formation based around different elements or, or groups of Gen Z that have a particular cultural footprint or posture, do we end up seeing brands that are less like, hey, this is social media for X or e-commerce for Y, but more like if you're in this group, here's a service that is almost like a super app for you that'll do 
e-commerce, social, and so forth, targeted just at you and your particular cultural fragment. So I wonder if we could go like vertical and horizontal at the same time to target these smaller Gen Z cultural groupings. Yeah, actually, I mean, I think that's how probably some of these vertical networks will monetize, right? And actually, that's where I think social and commerce will really converge is, you know, communities are smaller. And and if it's smaller, it's harder to perhaps monetize off an ad-based network. But then you layer on e-com, you layer on other forms of monetization. And so, yes, I do see this kind of like vertical, horizontal intersection happening with the future kind of communities. Yeah. So we'll call it the the Gen Z horizontal method of consumer application development. There we go. That's the worst worst thing I've ever said out loud on the show. Okay. Another thing that caught my eye in the report was just how widespread certain video services are. You guys wrote that uh, 93% of Gen Z uses YouTube weekly, 83% use TikTok weekly. Those are so high as to be essentially the generation uses those two products. One thing I've noticed though, is that, you know, Instagram has reels youtube has shorts tiktok has its own short form videos everyone wants to do these kind of like quicker shorter videos because they're incredibly popular with consumers people love them but it seems like everything's kind of looking the same and so i'm curious if if this like current moment of consumers want short form video and the incumbents do it well is going to make it harder for new gen z focused consumer applications to break into the public consciousness because what the consumer population wants already exists and is well handled by these large companies. Yeah, I mean, I think I see videos more a form of interaction with Gen Zs because it speaks to how they want to interact with brands, right? But TikTok, Instagram Reels, they are kind of a destination. And so I think that brands and companies can still leverage this you know, medium of, of communication that will still be kind of productive in their relationship building with the end consumer. I like that. I I hope that's the case because it would be kind of a bummer if we let incumbent, well, not let, but if we saw, you know, incumbent companies that already have achieved success own a particular category of content that ended up removing oxygen from the room for new consumer startups. I want to touch on social and commerce really, really quickly because this is a opaque world to me. Everyone knows social media has had a big impact on, on shopping and people like to show things off, compare, drop names and help each other out. Um, There's also been a lot of talk about video and commerce coming together. I know this is popular in a a number of key Asian markets, less popular here in the United States thus far. After looking at Gen Z, where do you see social and commerce coming together for them? And are there any changes in how commerce executes online that are coming that we should be aware of? Yeah, I've been monitoring this space for a long time. I actually grew up in Shanghai. And to your point, in China, this is not a new concept by any means, right? And the US has lagged behind kind of this trend for a while, but I do think that the pandemic and Gen Zs in particular have been a really good forcing function in this kind of new online shopping experience in the Western world. It's interesting, you know, Gen Zs, they they have $360 billion in global purchasing power. The way that they find and purchase goods are fundamentally different than other generations, and particularly on social. They grew up with social, they spent a lot of time on social, it's an essential part of their lives. And they leverage social beyond socializing, right? It's it's mm. a hub to discover new brands, purchase products, and actually at a much higher rate than other generations, um, as yeah. well as recommend brands to family and friends. And so it's become just this new critical node in the consumer purchasing journey that is evolving. 
you know, at the same time, it's actually, it's, it's interesting. It's, it comes at a time when brands are increasingly turning to social to maintain connection with customers and own data directly, right? You saw Zio's 14 updates disable brands' ability to effectively track and retarget. CAC on paid marketing is an all-time high. Conversion rates on e-com sites are an all-time low. And Ooh. so you have this kind of paradigm shift in how consumers interact with brands, you know, when, how, what they're they're shopping for. And so, yes, it's it's I think there's a lot of interesting kind of drivers and tailwinds for just this convergence of social and e-com. And I guess you layer on video because that's my, that might be the way that the medium is shown. But yeah, super excited by this kind of convergence, excited by the infrastructure and software that's kind of supporting this, this retail transformation. Okay. So let me try to, let me try to chain some of this together. So if selling stuff via social media advertisements is more expensive than it was before. And if we are seeing the effectiveness of traditional e-commerce advertisements decrease, and we have a generation that has a lot of purchasing power and expects authenticity, does that mean that brands have to be like way smarter to be like native megaphones for their worldview to a degree or like like brand ethos? Because it sounds like you have to be more of like um, you create your own signal versus you buy access to consumer attention in that model. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest and most important aspects of marketing to Gen Z is to be very human centric, right? And so you have to be open, honest, authentic. You have to embrace kind of this diversity because they are the most diverse generation. You have to personalize everything. You have to be omni-channel. You have to kind of enable this two-way interaction feedback loop. So yes, to your question, they can no longer maybe buy their way to the top of funnel. They really have to form this kind of meaningful bond with consumers because that's what Gen Z, that's what resonates with Gen Z. Okay. Now we only have a couple of minutes left. I want to get to something that I've been putting off to the end here because I want to make sure we got through other stuff first. At the top of the show, you were talking about how diverse Gen Z is and how they are, they more identify as queer than other generations. And also in your report, you guys talked about climate change and mental health and, you know, mm-hmm. values and ethics. And what struck me is the the tension between what we know about Gen Z and how they view the world and what we hear from a lot of currently well-known business leaders and how they view the world. Is there as much tension between the old guard and the new generation in terms of how they view the world? Or am I overblowing this in my own mind? You know, I think there might be a lot of maybe miscommunication and misinterpretation. <laughs> I think Gen Z's you know, at their core value, which I really respect and appreciate, they have a really have a vision to create meaningful change. They are really unafraid to challenge the status quo. And I think this is a mindset that permeates throughout their entire kind of lifestyle. And it's very novel to them compared to the last several generations. And I think it really develops a commitment and bravery. What we're seeing to really take control of their lives and to really address pressing and perhaps even non-traditional challenges from climate change to social inequalities. And that manifests in the way, again, they relate to brands, the way that they vote with their wallet or and what they're actually creating. They're very entrepreneurial. You're, you're seeing a lot of just stuff being created by this generation, which makes me so excited. So I have a very positive tilt on, on Gen Z's and I'm very excited by what we'll see over the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Oh yeah, no, same. I'm I'm actually incredibly bullish on them. 
I think Gen Z is very interesting, very engaged, and they seem to be a little bit kind of like a no bullshit generation to a degree. Mm-hmm. They seem to kind of know what they want. Gen X, in my experience, are a bunch of sad, smashing pumpkins fans. Everyone who's a millennial wishes they'd save more in their 401k when they were 23 and didn't and now feels behind in life. Gen Z, on the other hand, does seem to just feel very different. And I, I think it is that that diversity of culture and, and other things they bring to the picture. But, you know, looking at your guys' kind of like takeaways in this report, like the macro environment of climate change leading to purposeful consumption and a commitment to sustainability. I mean, these are things that certain people who are well-known today in the business world would call the woke mind virus. And so to me, I almost expect a lot of existing business gurus to struggle to connect to Gen Z because they are dismissing out of hand their worldview as effectively soft. And that was a very interesting thing to take away from a venture capital report. And so I appreciate you guys bringing that to the fore. Before we go, though, there's a new generation on the rise. There's Gen Alpha. Terrifying, I know everybody. When do we need to start caring about Gen Alpha? And when should startups begin to think about that demographic in how they approach the market? Good question. Good question. For us, we're always interested in understanding how different consumer behavior drives certain business innovation, right? They're still a little young. (laughs) I would say as they kind of go into college, again, as they enter the workforce, as they kind of enter a more meaningful, perhaps kind of earning potential, I think that's when we should start taking notice. But in a few years, I would say in a few years. So not too far out then. Not not too far out. It's lovely to read a venture capital report and leave with a smile on my face, but I thought this was overall very exciting. And I think it bodes well for the startup world in general that Gen Z is so entrepreneurial with 62% saying they want to eventually open a business. That's a, a very high stat. And so it means that you and your team will be very busy for years and years to come. Before you go though, where can people find you on the internet? My DMs are always open on LinkedIn and Twitter. My handle is Courtney Z Chow. I'll respond right away. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And when it's time to do this for Generation Alpha, let me know and we'll have you back on and we'll talk about how we feel even slightly more dated when we're looking at the next generation. Perfect. Thanks, Alex. And of course, if you listen to Equity and want more of the show during the week, we are Equity Pod on Threads and Twitter. And we are back Monday morning with more of the show. We'll talk to you then. Goodbye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.